Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we come to one of the most unpopular parts of evangelism. It's a God-designed component that has in recent decades been mostly eradicated from gospel presentations. Today we will be talking about sin. Remember, the good news can only be understood as good once it's contrasted with the bad. Thanks for listening today, as we will see how Jesus uses God's law as the instrument of revealing man's sin and therefore man's need of a savior. It was some years ago that I was driving my first truck. It was a 1995 Toyota pickup truck, four-wheel drive with a stick shift. It was awesome. I remember picking up uh, one of my buddies, and uh, you know, as you are a young person, you're not always the most responsible, and uh, this truck didn't have the best tie rod, so if you cornered too sharp, you felt it, and in this one instance, uh, I turned the corner, first one, a little too much speed, and uh, we all felt the truck turning just a little bit, and uh, my buddy, who had not yet put his seatbelt on, instinctively reached for the (laughs) seatbelt. to put it on. Have you ever been there before, right? Little reminder that the driver is a flawed, sinful human. Yeah. And it is that awareness of danger that causes us to want to look to that which will save you or protect you. Uh, Some good friends of mine uh, this past week lost their cabin. uh, I think it was a lightning strike. The whole thing completely burned to ashes. Now, you can imagine if you had, it's not their primary residence, but it, I mean, it was, it was beautiful, log cabin. It was, it was gorgeous. It was their place of refuge and, um, and, and fellowship with the Lord and done, gone. But if you were there, had they been there, if you saw a spark, what would you do? You'd get the extinguisher. You'd put it out right away. You see, if you notice the danger, if you see the threat, You'll do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to make sure that your life is preserved. I believe there is an error that has crept into the church in the age in which we live when it comes specifically to how we share the gospel. Uh, We have been conditioned. You have been brainwashed, conditioned and conformed by our culture over generations, that we have a stronger fear of man than God. And so when it comes to sharing the message of hope, unfortunately for many people in our world today, with evangelism, it has changed from saying, watch out, there is eternal fire that is at risk. There there is danger for your life, for your soul, but Jesus will save you. But Jesus provides a way for you. That message has been changed. And it's been a subtle change. I I doubt you have even noticed it. Um, Instead of giving the warning of eternal separation from God in a hell that has not been created for the human creatures, but that which we create for ourselves here on this earth, living in rebellion to God, instead of a warning, many times the gospel is now shared as something that Jesus can do for you. That your life somehow will be enhanced or made better. That Jesus is no longer that savior from your sin. But 
some type of new age life coach that will make you happier or or a better person or have a healthier life. It's a subtle change, but it's an error that I think is deadly. And it's one that is an abandonment of the message that comes from God's word. It's because I believe so many people today are afraid to offend. We're too afraid, and so we have whitewashed away sin. Do you see this in your world? Have you realized this? That which at one time in a previous generation would be unthinkable as a kind of sin, even within the church, is now something that's not simply permitted, but almost allowed and encouraged in the church of all places. And it's come because we have had a greater fear of man than a fear of God, and in so doing, we have left or twisted or abandoned God's word. This is Jesus's words in John 8. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, well, will he kill himself? Is that why he says where I go, you can't come? But he continued, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. It's a pretty unpopular message. You can even see how the Jews of that day were confused by it. In fact, this isn't something new. This is something very old. Humans have never liked being challenged to their own idolatry. We've never liked that. Since great-grandma and grandpa Adam and Eve in the garden decided they thought they know better, every one of us who have come from them also feels very deep in our sinful bones. Yeah, I don't like to be told I am wrong. In fact, in the Old Testament, this one of many passages from Ezekiel 22 Her prophets whitewashed these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land practice extortion. They commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy. They mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. Centuries before Jesus. And we're told this in the New Testament, this from 2 Timothy 4. uh, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Not many people today um, have a, a, a desire to know the God of forgiveness. Frankly, because so many, very few people feel they even need it. But God has given you a message. He he has given us a message. This is why we are in a series on evangelism, because in order to do it right, we need to make sure that we are taking our marching orders from those who have come before us as outlined by God's word, not being conformed or dictated according to the whims of what the culture wants to hear. And now I fully understand that this message that I'm delivering this morning is going to be one that's going to really challenge you. It's challenging to me. Uh, I, I, I wrote down in my notes, uh, I said, I fully expect that it won't be practiced, but I'm going to preach it anyways. And 
I think actually what we're going to end up doing is kind of a part one, part two for this morning and then hearing a very similar message next Sunday again. Uh, And in doing so, my hope is that we would be willing to be the kind of Christians who say, let's get it right. Amen. Let's get it right, even if it causes people offense. Not that we want to offend them, but we want to point out the threat, the danger of their sin. It'd be as if somebody went to the doctor and the doctor said, I got really bad news. You have a fatal disease. It's going to kill you. And the patient goes like this. Nope. I don't want to hear it. But, but there's a remedy. There, there's a treatment. You can be saved if but you will just accept and understand that you need a complete heart transplant. Your life is in jeopardy. And people don't want to hear that message today. It's hard. Right? Be honest with me now, folks, right? It's a little bit hard to go to your neighbor and, and say this. And I, I want to make sure that as well as we're studying evangelism, uh, there, there's three parts to it that we're going to review again. We're going to try to do this every week until we really capture how the Bible outlines for us what evangelism should look like. So what I want you to hear is that I'm not, as your pastor, putting some type of artificial um, calling of evangelism over your life where you need to go out and become an evangelist. God has already made you an evangelist right where you are. The call from Jesus in Matthew 28 says, therefore, go make disciples. And the word for go is used as a participle, meaning it's as you're going. Church, you're already going. You are the neighbors that you live by. The, the, the friends that you have surrounding you in your life, your co-workers, your family members, that's where you are already going. And it is your life on display along with the words of the gospel and your witness that makes up a symphonic kind of biblical evangelism. So let's review those real quick. Three areas. The first has to do with how you live. God's strategy for winning the lost is with the evidence of your life. And how you serve and how you do not return eye for eye or evil for evil. And how you are generous with those material blessings that you have. Even for people who cannot repay you. The Bible says if you only give to those who can pay you back, what good is that? Even pagans do that. So you, Christian, you and I are taught and told and modeled by Jesus. We serve and we love the least of these generously knowing that God provides abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. Secondly, it's the gospel message. We studied this in depth over the past couple of weeks. Three areas. Can, can, you get, can we do a quiz? You guys ready? You didn't know there would be a pop quiz. Number one, Jesus is. Ooh, a little rusty. All right, we'll get better next week. Number one, Jesus is. Lord, number two, Jesus has. Risen, very good. Jesus is risen. And number three, Jesus died for. Bingo. That is the good news. It doesn't matter if people believe you. It's a fact. That is all true. You don't have to convince anyone of it. You're just the one relaying the message. This is true. This is, Jesus is Lord. The tomb is completely empty. He did it. God sent him to die for our sins. That's the gospel message. And then how do we fit into it? We fit into it with our personal testimonies. Last week, we looked at the subjectivity of it, how, uh, how this can be seen in two ways. Your personal conversion story. This is how I came to know Jesus. That's what God has done, past tense. 
And the second option is what God is presently doing. That's also your subjective personal witness. Your story is different than others. God has given you a unique way of understanding God's grace. It's yours. It's your story of both what God has done in the past, what God is presently doing in the, in the present. And if you can remember from our application from last Sunday, do you remember what you, you really need to do to get it? Pray. pray. Lois got the first part. Yep, got to pray. Second one. I see her looking at her notes back there. That's okay. This is worth a review, folks. You got to practice it. That's absolutely right. You have to practice it. And I uh, just show of hands, who was blessed by Sarah's witness last Sunday? And that was awesome, wasn't it? Uh, that that we, could, we could hear and we could see one of our own, a story that many of us can line up with. And, and she worked through it and she practiced it. And now it's something that she has a greater grip on. It's like anything. You have to practice it. Well, today we're going to move away from the subjectivity of our witness. And we're going to talk about objectivity. Uh, Give me just a second to explain those. Subjective means that it focuses on the subject, you. Objective means it focuses on something external to you. You and I still have a witness to give on this, but it's not our story anymore. Now it is something external to us. And when, when we look into God's word, God has provided something to help us see our sin objectively. Out from outside of our own lives. And it is his law. Pretty unpopular way of sharing the good news, unfortunately, today. Nevertheless, it is exactly the design of God to be used to show sinners they need a savior. So that's what we're going to be studying for this morning. Um, We're going to be reading a passage out of Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, We're going to get a a great story where Jesus is asked uh, the best question you could ever hope to be asked when it comes to practicing evangelism. So Matthew chapter 19. What we'll do is we'll read through the passage and then we're we're going to talk through some of the key errors that we can observe from this text followed by some conclusions that are going to help us get some bearing for how we can best be suited to practice a witness. Remember, this is our testimony that is now objective. And again, we're going to need to hear this a couple of times because it's just not something that's taught very frequently. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? First of all, let's just pause there. Like, come on, that's a softball pitch, isn't it? I mean, that's just like, how how many of you have ever had your neighbor come to you and be like, hey, how are you? Oh, nice day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Usually not that obvious, right? But Here, what I want you to see is we're going to see the formula that Jesus uses. We're going to watch and see how Jesus uses that which God has already designed to reveal the need within the heart of the sinner. So let's continue verse 17. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey 
the commandments. Which ones, the man replied, or inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because... He had great wealth. All right, we're going we're gonna to pause there on the story. We're going we're to pick up just a little piece of the end as we work through uh, the rest of what we're identifying here. You can see immediately that Jesus tells him, uh, you need to obey the commandments. And if, if in doing so, you can obey them, you will indeed have been perfect. Uh, And Jesus starts with only half of the commandments. Did you notice that? They weren't all there. So we're going to talk about that in a minute too. I want to show you some of the great errors that uh, this passage outlines for us. Problems in our world. Uh, The very first problem is that if you don't see your sin, you will not seek a savior. Uh, This young man, as he was coming to Jesus, was not interested in Jesus as a savior. He, didn't, he was blind. He did not even see the ways in which he lacked an understanding of sin. He thought he was doing fine. Do you remember? Look what it says. Verse 20. All of these I have kept. Now, come on. Right? Seriously? Just, let's just take the honor your father and mother one. Like, let's just use that one. Right? All teenagers break it every day. Right? So it's somewhere in your past, right? No, you missed it. But he says, did you see it? He says he had them all. And so he's never going to look for a savior. He, He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need grace because he doesn't see the danger. He doesn't see his sin. Uh, This is a quote from uh, Pastor John MacArthur. He says, grace means nothing to a person who doesn't know he is sinful. And that such sinfulness means he is separated from God and damned. It is therefore pointless to preach grace until the impossible demands of the law and the reality of guilt before God are preached. Uh, Watch this from Luke chapter 13. Now, there were some present who at that time told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. They didn't see the danger. And so they had no need for grace or forgiveness. 
Here was the cultural issue that Jesus was dealing with in his day, right? If you saw somebody who was suffering, you would think, they must have deserved it, right? They must have done something really bad to make God so angry. Good thing it wasn't me, though. Good thing that I am in God's good graces. I must have done nothing wrong. Here, Jesus lifts that veil of confusion so that they will see the need. In fact, you, you don't even have to uh, think very hard about this on how easy it is for us to do foolish things if you don't see the danger. Um, recently, uh, I took my family to the Grand Canyon, and there was this one moment where I thought, let's go out closer to the edge. And I think I've told you this. My wife was not too happy with that. Here's just another example of that foolishness. Do you see the, the edge right there? Well, I don't know if what you can't see because it's too small, is that there's Mr. Smarty Pants uh, right out on the edge. Now, I'll tell you this. It didn't look that bad once I was just looking at my feet. But if I looked over, if I looked over the edge, oh, man, you start to get wobbly, right? Because why? I'm seeing what? I can, I can see the danger. And it's only when I realize that I am actually in a position of threat that I will ever change my behavior in my action. So we have to be very careful that we don't whitewash things. No one will ever need a savior if they don't see their sin. Number two, uh, the basic mistake of humanity is a works-based salvation. Look with me again into the text. The, The first question that comes from the young, rich man was, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? This is a fundamental flaw in human DNA. Because we operate like this with one another, right? The, the, you grew up with having to get good grades, right? And if you got good grades, things went better for you, right? If I read so many books as a kid, it meant I got a pizza. <laughs> right? How, how about um, performance-based raises, right? At work. Or incentives that are, that are geared to production. This is how we operate. If you do good, you get better. And so tell me, what must I do? Um, You can see this passage from Galatians. Paul says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because, he's got to repeat himself, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So who's going to make it? If it's up to you and what you can do. But do you see the error? That's how we think. I mean, I was a good Christian. I wrote out my check, right? I put it in the plate. I went to church. I haven't cussed in a day. Right? I, am, I am a good Christian. And we would accidentally press that same false type of a gospel to our children as much as we are in error of believing it ourselves. In fact, there's a, there's a friend of mine who uh, recently we were in a Bible study and we, we were talking about the passage when Jesus says that narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, but wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And he made this comment. He said, You know, I know there are many people who are so confident of their salvation. I don't have that. 
I just hope that on that day of judgment, I've done enough to make it through the narrow gate. Oh, when I, when I heard that, it was just like, what hope do you have, man? Like, what can you do? And the problem is, we have been conditioned to think after a works, evidential-based form of salvation. And that's not at all what the scriptures teach. You can see the error in his mind, the rich young man. Third error, uh, we compare ourselves with each other for merit. This is a a flaw within the, the human condition for how we think highly of ourselves. You'll again see in the text... Teacher, what good thing must I do? As if, if I did it, I would then be what? I'd then be good. I must be good if I were to do it. Did you see Jesus' answer? Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, either Jesus is lying or that makes all of us evil. And yet we don't think of ourselves that way. Come on, be honest. Can you think of somebody who you are better than? Come on. There's got to be someone who's worse than you, right? Probably is not too hard to think of all the people that we use to judge ourselves accordingly. Watch this passage from 2 Corinthians. Paul says, we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. And so we too have fallen into this mistake of thinking that we are good when in fact we are not. When in fact we, we stink. <laughs> uh, it was a, maybe a year ago, I remember uh, we went to McDonald's and uh, my son, who's growing, uh, likes fish fillet sandwiches. I, I'm, they're not particularly the ones that I like, but he doesn't just eat one. He doesn't just eat two. Um, so we were driving in the truck, a bunch of fish fillet sandwiches. And, um, and then we went and did some work. And the truck smelled fine as far as I was aware of until I came back. <laughs> It was only when I had the fresh air of the outdoors that when I came back into the truck, it smelled like fish. Yeah, fish play sandwiches. Do you know that's what your life is like? The more that you compare yourselves with this world, this culture, with one another, the more you have become spiritually blinded to the actual stench of your life. The, the, the further that you look into the darkened heart, you'll see that it is not good. I am so often motivated by pride and selfishness after my own fleshly desires, for my own glory. Where does that come from? Well, we do our best to try to be like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to see it. In fact, we have in many churches concocted ways of permitting this sinful behavior so that it's allowed when in fact it reeks before God. And it's only being in his presence. It's only the fresh air of being with God that we realize that. This passage from uh, further in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the God of this age, that's the devil. Satan, who is an imposter of this this section of time, uh, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. So are you guys with me from the passage? Do you see the problems in our world today? Uh, If you don't see your sin, you won't need a savior. Uh, We mistakenly think that we can earn our salvation through works. And the mistake everybody makes is we compare ourselves with one another. Three conclusions that I want us to examine from this passage. Number one, the root problem is idolatry. The root problem is idolatry. There's been times that I've been counseling with people and they're working through complaints and this person and this happened over there. and, And we dig a little bit further until we find none of that's the actual problem. Those are just symptoms of a deeper problem. This is exactly what Jesus does with the rich man. In fact, he goes through the Ten Commandments, but not all ten of them. Did you notice? If you're pretty keen on this, which ones did he leave out? If if you're confident, shout it out. Thank you, Phil. All of the ones that deal with God, Jesus skips. Now, who thinks he meant to do that? Jesus totally meant to do that because... What Jesus was doing in dealing with just the ones, just the horizontal commandments that deal with one another, is he's actually revealing the idolatry in the heart of the rich man. He has broken the first four, having fallaciously claimed to keep the last six. And the only way that Jesus knows here how to reveal that to him is to skip over the verse four so that he is now self-condemned thinking that he was perfect according to the law, but you'll see what was his God. Shout it out if you know it. The rich man's God was? It was money. That's right. He served money. Money was his master. And I want you to know this is the same problem when it comes to sharing evangelism and the reason why people don't want to hear about sin. It's not because they don't think they're a good person. That, that's the exact problem. They think they are a good person because they are worshiping themselves they have a false deity in their lives that they serve and so idolatry is the root problem secondly the law brings awareness of sin it was the law that jesus here walked him through that set him up to finally see his sin in fact you can see it at the very end of verse 22 The young man, when he heard this, went away sad. He didn't think he was going to go away sad, but in fact he does because the law revealed in his heart the idolatry that was there all along. This passage you've already heard uh, read by Don this morning, but Romans 3, I'd like to just press it once more. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. This is a repetition from Galatians, right? So what, God? What's the deal, Paul? Why did God give us the law? Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of sin. That's how you know. God God designed this as the mechanism to show us the danger that's there. So the law brings knowledge of sin. This needs to become part of our testimony. I I would be willing to bet it very, very rarely is part of any of ours. But I'd like you to see how Jesus uses it. That this is exactly the strategy of God to reveal to the sinner the danger that's there. Lastly, only perfection is going to make it. Jesus says, 
in verse 21, if you want to be perfect. Wow. We already read how in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Perfection. Nobody's going to be able to make it. There's no other place, by the way, that we have this where Jesus tells somebody, if you want to make it to heaven, all you got to do, very simple, just one thing, perfect. (laughs) Is God perfect? Is Jesus perfect? If you look with me back into the text for just a second, if we jump down to verse 26, this is after Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, The disciples say, who can be saved then? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is, the, this is the clincher one right here. This is, this, we're all done. Nobody's got it. Impossible. Except what's Jesus say? It's no problem for God. Jesus is perfect. God is perfect. So what do we do with this? Well, here, let me give you this verse real quick. Galatians 3 says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up under faith that was to be revealed so that the law was put in charge to do what? Why was the law put in charge? Why, why did God design the law as something that, that we look at ourselves through? Because what does it do? It leads us to perfection. Not perfection in ourselves, but the perfection that has been accomplished through God's one and only son, Jesus, that we might be justified by faith. So this is what we need to learn to hold on to. I'd like us to just give a quick evaluation for how you and I can best incorporate into our witness and testimony a way of doing this. Number one, what do you think it is? That's it. Number one, evangelism always starts with prayer. So pray that God will help you with the right words and the right way to say those right words as you encounter those who are blind to the cliff, blind to the fire, blinded to the danger. Then ask them this question. Do you think you're a good person? Nine times out of ten, what do you think the sinner says? Yeah, totally better than that guy, which means I must be pretty good i mean yeah i got some rough edges but all in all i'm a pretty good person what would jesus say why do you ask me what is good there's only one who is good which means evil's there but what are they they are blind to it and so i want to encourage you to do what jesus does so when they say yeah i'm a good person show them the ten commandments Ask them, if God were to judge you according to the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? Let's just do an experiment here. Jesus starts with, in verse 18, do not what? Do not murder. We know from Matthew 5, Jesus said, you've heard that it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother is guilty of judgment. Or says, you fool, will be answerable to God. So, show of hands, who here has been angry with somebody. You're in church. I just need to remind you. (laughs) At some point in your life, you have characterized your heart after a murderer. Guilty, the law would say. What's the next one that he has here? Do not commit adultery. It's getting warm in church. (laughs) Jesus says, you've heard that it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust 
in his heart is guilty of adultery. Men and women, by the way, who's brave enough to raise their hands guilty of lust? Adulterer in my heart. Murderer in my heart. What's Jesus say next? Do not steal. Have you ever taken something that wasn't your own, even if it was small? Company time, maybe? Anybody? Anybody guilty of stealing? Some righteous Christians in church today. (laughs) Next one, do not give false testimony. We know this a little bit more generally as thou shalt not lie. Have you ever told a lie? Do, Do you see what the law is doing? How good are you now? It's gone. The illusion is now gone. If God were to judge you according to the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or would you be guilty? Guilty. Would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? I would go to hell. And so there's one part that's left out here, and that's you need to show them perfection. You need to show them now that Jesus has made a way for sinners like you and I. That you can have peace knowing that the penalty of your transgressions is paid. Your sin is gone. If you place your faith, if you place your trust in Jesus the same way. And I have here an example. The same way you would place your trust in him just like a parachute. Now, there is a... um, I want to conclude this morning. We're wrapping up right now. I just want to share with you a story. This comes from Ray Comfort. I don't know if anybody is familiar with the ministry of Living Waters. This is a form of evangelism that he uses regularly. I would highly recommend for your own development and practice according to letting your witness become to be composed by the law. How do I learn to share the law in evangelism to recommend what he produces? But this is what he writes. He says, two men are seated on a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put it on as it will improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first. He can't see how a parachute on a plane could possibly improve his flight. He decides to experiment to see if the claims are true. So he puts it on. And he notices the weight of it on his shoulders, and he finds it difficult to sit upright. However, he consoles himself with the fact that he was told the parachute will improve his flight. So he gives it a little more time. As he waits, he notices some of the other passengers are laughing at him for wearing a parachute on a plane. He begins to feel somewhat humiliated as they continue to point and laugh at him. He can stand it no longer. He slinks into his seat, unstraps the parachute, throws it on the floor. Disillusionment, bitterness fills his heart because as far as he was concerned, he was told an outright lie. The second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he is told. He is told to put it on because at any moment, he will be jumping from 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't even notice the weight of it on his shoulders. Or the fact that he can't sit upright. His mind is only consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped without a parachute. Now let's analyze the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first man's motive for putting the parachute on was solely to improve his flight. 
The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the passengers, disillusioned, and somewhat embittered against those who gave him the parachute. As far as he was concerned, it will be a long time before anyone gets one of those things back on his back again. The second man put on his parachute solely to escape the jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him if he jumped without it, he was, a, he was deep-rooted in joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he was saved from certain death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude towards those who gave him the parachute is only one of heartfelt gratitude. Now listen to what the modern gospel says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you love and joy, peace and fulfillment, lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. The sinner responds in an experimental fashion and puts on the Savior to see if it's true. And what does he get? He gets the promised temptation, tribulation, persecution from all the other passengers who mock him. And so what does he do? He takes off the Lord Jesus Christ. He's offended for the word's sake. He's disillusioned and somewhat embittered, and quite rightly so. He was promised peace, joy, love, and fulfillment, and all he got was trial and humiliation. His bitterness is directed at those who gave him the so-called good news. His latter end becomes worse than the first, and he's another inoculated and bitter backslider. Instead of preaching that Jesus improves the flight, we should be warning sinners that they have to jump off the plane. It's appointed for man once to die, and then judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. When a sinner understands the horrific consequences of breaking the law of God, he will flee to the Savior solely to escape the wrath that is to come. If we are a true and faithful witness, that's what we will be preaching, that there is wrath to come. And that God commands men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The issue isn't one of life enhancement, but one of righteousness. It doesn't matter how happy the sinner is or how much he's enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Without the righteousness of Christ, he will perish on the day of wrath. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. There's, there's more that I could read. I think, I think you all understand the point. Nobody puts on a parachute and gives it outside of the plane half of them. Right? If you're going to jump out of the plane with the parachute, all of your trust is where? It's in that parachute. And so as you and I work to become Christians, disciples of Jesus, apostles who are sent out into the world to make disciples... I want to encourage you today that God has given us a strategy. He's given you a mechanism to help warn them of the coming wrath to come. The fires are real. The cliff edge, it's real. The danger, it's real in its death. But God has made a way for that which was impossible for man is possible for God. Let's pray together.